Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for Book 9, Chapter 21. This is the first real look we've gotten at the inner life of Petya Rostov. What do you think of his character? How does he fit into the Rostov family dynamic? And what do you think Tolstoy's intent was in introducing him into the larger role this late in the story? I like Petya. I feel like he's... um kind of flown under the radar because he was just like the youngest child was his role in the story but now we kind of got to pay him a bit of attention because uh he's you know well becoming a man he wants to go to war i think he said he was 16 the footnotes to my version uh note that the episode with the emperor tossing biscuits to the crowd was one of a few historical details in the book that tolstoy could not give reference for it also says that if this had happened, that it would have been uncharacteristic of Alexander. What did you think of this scene when you read it, given that it seems like likely that Tolstoy made it up? What do you think he was trying to illustrate with this interaction between the sovereign and the crowd? Interesting, I didn't know that. Uh, it's cool to know. Um, maybe he drew that inspiration from something else, you know, maybe some other emperor did it or yeah but yeah I didn't know that I didn't know that it, it did kind of actually seem a bit out of character like Petya trampled an old lady to get one of these biscuits and surely um, if you've got a frenzied crowd in front of you no matter how much of a megalomaniac you are you're not going to pit them against each other or give them reason to start you know, going berserk uh, even when I went and watched At The Drive-In, <laughs> which was one of the psychoist audiences I've ever seen for a band, they walked off stage when people went too crazy and said, hey, I know we're the schizoist band in the world, but if you guys don't calm down, we're not going to keep playing. And us, being a Melbourne crowd, didn't calm down. And so what did they do? They bailed. Um, that was a big day out concert in uh, must have been like maybe 2005 or 6 uh, anyway that's, <laughs> that's a weird little aside for you uh, Twisted Every Way said this Petra is clearly the baby of the family and seems to be treated as such he's on that cusp of trying to be independent thinking he can make it on his own and trying to assert himself he's got nearly the same fervor of nationalism that his brother had about seeing the emperor and wanting to be part of something yeah, this was very reminiscent, says Four Lost Souls in a Bowl, of young Nikolai, treating the Tsar like some sort of messiah, if I could but just touch the hem of his robes, etc. Probably normal for a young man in that time and that place. Um, but it is weird, isn't it? It's kind of alarming, the level of fervor, fervor. Fervor? How do you say that word? Doesn't matter. Oh, excuse me. Yawning on the podcast. Chapter 22 goes like this. Two days later, on the 15th of July, an immense number of carriages were standing outside the Sloboda Palace. The great halls were full. In the first were the nobility and gentry in their uniforms. In the second, bearded merchants in full-skirted coats, 
of blue cloth and wearing medals, in the nobleman's hall there was an incessant movement and buzz of voices. The chief magnates sat on high-backed chairs at a large table under the portrait of the emperor, but most of the gentry were strolling about the room. All these nobles, whom Pierre met every day at the club or in their own houses, were in uniform, some in that of Catherine's day, others in that of Emperor Paul, others again in the new, new... new uniforms of Alexander's time, or the ordinary uniform of the nobility. And the general characteristic of being in uniform imparted something strange and fantastic to these diverse and familiar personalities, both old and young. The old men, dim-eyed, toothless, bald, sallow, and bloated, all gaunt and wrinkled, were especially striking. For the most part, they sat quietly in their places and were silent, or, if they walked about and talked, attached themselves to someone younger. On all these faces, as on the faces of the crowd Pitcher had seen in the square, there was a striking contradiction, the general expectation of a solemn event, and at the same time the everyday interests in a Boston card party, Peter the Cook, Zenaida, Dmitrievna's health, and so on. Pierre was there too, buttoned up since early morning in a nobleman's uniform that had become too tight for him. He was agitated, this extraordinary gathering was not uh, gathering not only of nobles but also of the merchant class, Le Etos Jaros, States General, evoked in him a whole series of ideas he had long as- laid aside but which were deeply graven on his soul. Uh, thoughts of the Contrat Social and the French Revolution. Graven is a good word. Engraved, graven. The words that had struck him in the Emperor's appeal that the Sovereign was coming to the capital for consultation with his people strengthened this idea. And imagining that in this direction something important which he had long awaited was drawing near, he strolled about watching and listening to conversations, but nowhere finding any confirmation of the ideas that occupied him. The Emperor's manifesto was read, evoking enthusiasm, and then all moved about discussing it. Besides the ordinary topics of conversation, Pierre heard questions of where the marshals of the nobility were to stand when the Emperor entered, when a ball should be given in the Emperor's honour, whether they should group themselves by districts or by whole provinces, and so on. But as soon as the war was touched on, or what the nobility had been convened for, the talk became undecided and indefinite. Then all preferred listening to speaking. A middle-aged man, handsome and virile, in the uniform of a retired naval officer, was speaking in one of the rooms, and a small crowd was pressing around him. Pierre went up to the circle that had formed around the speaker and listened. Count Ilya Rostov, in a military uniform of Catherine's time, was sauntering with a pleasant smile among the crowd, with all of whom he was acquainted. He, too, approached that group and listened with a kindly smile and nods of approval, as he always did, to what the speaker was saying. The retired naval man was speaking very boldly, as was evident from the expression on the faces of the listeners and from that, and from the fact that some people, Pierre knew as the meekest and quietest of men, walked away disapprovingly or expressed disagreement with him. Pierre pushed his way into the middle of the group, listened and convinced himself that the man was indeed a liberal but of views quite different from his own. The naval officer spoke in a particularly sonorous, musical and aristocratic baritone voice, pleasantly swallowing his R's and generally slurring his consonants, the voice of a man calling out to his servant, Who, hey, here, bring me my pipe. It was indicative of dissipation and the exercise of authority. What if the Smolensk people have offered 
to Wei's militia for the emperor. Are we to take Smolensk as our pattern if we, noble aristocracy of the province of Moscow, thinks fit it can show its loyalty to our sovereign, the emperor, in other ways? Have we forgotten the wazing of the militia in the year seven? All that did was to enrich the priests' sons and thieves of robbers. Count Ilya Rostov smiled blandly and nodded approval. And was our militia of any use to the emperor? Empire? Not at all. It only wound our farming. Better have another conscription. Oh, our men will what neither soldiers nor peasants. And we got only depravity from them. The nobility don't grudge the lives. Every one of us will go on and bring in more recruits. And the sovereign, that was the way he referred to the emperor, need only say the word and we'll all die for him, added the orator with animation. Count Rostov mouths. Count Rostov's mouth watered with pleasure, and he nudged Pierre, but Pierre wanted to speak himself. He pushed forward, feeling stirred, but not yet sure what stirred him or what he would say. Scarcely had he opened his mouth when one of the senators, a man with a, without a tooth in his head, with a shrewd though angry expression standing near the first speaker, interrupted him, evidently accustomed to managing debates and to maintaining an argument, he began in low but distinct tones. I imagine, sir, said he, mumbling with his toothless mouth, that we have been summoned here not to discuss whether it's best for the empire at the present moment to adopt a conscription or to call out the militia. We have been summoned to reply to the appeal with which our sovereign, the emperor, has honoured us. But to judge what is best, conscription or the militia, we can leave to the supreme authority. Pierre suddenly saw an outlet for his excitement. He hardened his heart against the senator who was introducing this set a narrow attitude into the deliberations of the nobility. Pierre stepped forward and interrupted him. He himself did not yet know what he would say, but he began to speak eagerly, occasionally lapsing into French or expressing himself in bookish Russian. Excuse me, Your Excellency, he began. He was well acquainted with the senator, but thought it necessary on this occasion to address him formally. Though I don't agree with the gentleman, he hesitated, he wished to say, Montre Honorable Prepinant, my very honorable opponent, with the gentleman whom I have not the honour of knowing, I suppose that the nobility have been summoned not merely to express their sympathy and enthusiasm, but also to consider the means by which we can assist our fatherland. I imagine, he went on, warming to his subject, that the emperor himself would not be satisfied to find in us merely owners of serfs who are willing to devote to his service and, and chair a cannon, a food for cannon, we are ready to make of ourselves and not to obtain from us any co-co-counsel. Many persons withdrew from the circle, noticing the senator's sarcastic smile and f the freedom of Pierre's remarks. Only Count Rostov was pleased with them, as he had been pleased with those of the naval officer, the senator, and in general with whatever speech he had last heard. I think that before discussing these questions, Pierre continued, we should ask the emperor, most respectfully ask his majesty, to let us know the number of our troops and the position in which our army and our forces now are and then. But scarcely had Pierre uttered these words before he was attacked from three sides. The most vigorous attack came from an old acquaintance, a Boston player who had always been well disposed toward him, Stepan Stepanovich Andraksin. Andraksin was in uniform, and whether as a result of the uniform or from some other cause, Pierre saw 
before him, quite a different man. With a sudden expression of malevolence on his aged face, Adraxan shouted at Pierre, In the first place, I tell you, we have no right to question the Emperor about that, and secondly, if the Russian nobility had that right, the Emperor could not ask, answer such a question. The troops are moved according to the enemy's movements, and the number of men increases and decreases. <coughs> Excuse me. Another voice, that of a nobleman of medium height and about 40 years of age, whom Pierre had formerly met at the Gypsies and knew as a bad card player, and who had also transformed by his uniform, came up to Pierre, interrupted Araxin. Yes, and this is not a time for discussing, he continued, but for acting. There is a war in Russia. The enemy is advancing to destroy Russia, to decorate the tombs of our fathers, to carry off our wives and children. The nobleman smote his breast. We will all arise. Every one of us will go, for our father is the Tsar, he shouted. Rolling his bloodshot eyes, several approving voices were heard in the crowd. We are Russians, and we will not grudge our blood in defense of our faith at the throne and the fatherland. We must cease raving. If we are sons of our fatherland, we will show Europe how Russia rises to defense of Russia. Pierre wished to reply, but could not get in a word. He felt that his words, apart from what meaning they conveyed, were less audible than the sounds of his opponent's voice. Count Rostov at the back of the crowd was expressing approval. Several persons, briskly turning a shoulder to the orator at the end of a phrase, said, That's right, quite right, just so. Pierre wished to say he was ready to sacrifice his money, his serfs, or himself. Only one ought to know the state of affairs in order to be able to improve it, but he was unable to speak. Many voices shouted and talked at the same time, so that Count Rostov had not time to signify his approval of them all, and the group increased dispersed, reformed, and then moved with a hum of talk into the largest hall and the big table. Not only was Pierre's attempt to speak unsuccessful, but he was rudely interrupted, pushed aside, and people turned away from him as from a common enemy. This happened not because they were displeased by the substance of his speech, which had been forgotten after the many subsequent speeches, but to animate it, the crowd needed a tangible object to love and a tangible object to hate. Pierre became the latter. Many other orators spoke after the excited nobleman, and all in the same tone. Many spoke eloquently and with originality. Glinka, the editor of the Russian Messenger, who was recognized, cries of author, author, were heard in the crowd, said that hell must be repulsed by hell, and that he had seen a child smiling at lightning flashes and thundercaps, but we will not be that child. Yes, yes, at thunderclaps, was repeated approvingly in the back rows of the crowd. The crowd drew up to the largest table, at which sat grey-haired and bald seventy-year-old magnates, uniformed and besashed, almost all of whom Pierre had seen in their own homes, with their buffoons, or playing Boston at the clubs. With an incessant hum of voices, the crowd advanced to the table, pressed by the throng against the high backs of the chairs. The orators spoke one after another and sometimes two together. Those standing behind noticed what a speaker omitted to say and hastened to supply it. Others in the heat, that heat and crush, racked their brains to find some thought and hastened to utter it. The old magnates, whom Pierre knew, sat and turned to look at one another, one and then at another, and their faces, for the most part, only expressed the fact that they found it very hot. Pierre, however, felt excited and the general desire to show that they were ready to go to all lengths, which f found expression in the tones and looks more than in the substance of the speeches, infected him too. 
He did not renounce his opinions, but felt himself in some way to blame and wished to justify himself. I only said that it would be more to the purpose to make sacrifices when we know what is needed, said he, trying to be heard above the other voices. One of the old men nearest to him looked around, but his attention was immediately diverted by an exclamation at the other side of the table. Yes, Moscow will be surrendered. She will be our expiation, shouted one man. He is the enemy of mankind, cried another. Allow me to speak. Gentlemen, you are crushing me. All right, bit of chaos. The men are talking <laughs> and bickering and shouting over one another. Um, and Pierre has... Hey, we haven't seen Pierre do this for a while, but he's known for uh, giving his controversial opinion, and he hasn't failed here. All right, guys, have your say. Tomorrow's chapter is the last one in book nine. Then we uh, move on to book ten. So, I'll see you tomorrow.